one of my first jobs in LA was working with with uh, the real Wonder Woman who, you know, I think I looked okay in the mirror when they made me up and then I'd come onto the set and I'd look at her and I, I looked like a thumb next to her. <laughs> she could rest her breasts on my head. I mean, that's how tall she was. And, um, you know, I just knew what true beauty was. I mean, Linda Carter is still a gorgeous woman. Oh my God. I've never heard it described that way before. It's knock on wood. I try not to even think about it too much because I'm afraid. It'll... You know, you know, one of my friends, I, I think about this all the time too, because people are like, have you ever shaved your head? Cause I've always had somewhat longish hair this post pandemic or we're still in it or whatever, but that's, this is the longest it's ever been ever. But I've always had kind of semi-long hair. And one of my friends was like, have you ever thought about shaving it? I'm like, first of all, I'd look like Yentl, so no. Uh, <laughs> and second of all, um, I one of my buddies, they did this as a joke to him, like freshman year of college. They shaved his hair while he was sleeping. It never grew back. What? Yeah, Trauma. man. At and I was like, I will never. like. I mean, obviously, he was probably like balding anyway or whatever but that just cinched the deal but yeah he had a pretty had decent be. head of hair and they they were just like ah oh, this would be hilarious and they got drunk and they shaved it and it never grew back and that haunts me to this day i but have a i have a chapter in my book and we did start plugging right away yeah go I ahead no. my book about doing a commercial with a guy with gorgeous hair mm. hair has always been a big thing of mine and Ooh. um i guess we were 23 24 years old and um, we were doing a beach shot at Jones Beach and it mm. was March, it was freezing, but we were in bathing suits for this beer commercial. And um, they kept throwing blankets over us to get us warm and in this <laughs> comfort kind of way, because it was the wind chill was like 40 degrees on Jones Beach. Right. We got very attached to each other, you know, during mm -hmm. the day. So uh, then we found out when they sent the limo with us home, we both lived on 72nd Street in New York and <laughs> lived right, right nearby. And we both love Kentucky Fried Chicken. And oh. so he had just done a commercial for Kentucky Fried chicken so he picked he picked up the extra crispy <laughs> let's have a picnic we've been on a blanket all day let's have a picnic in my apartment you know and um i was newly divergenated i have to say that in advance and it was mm -hmm. like yes okay what's it for chicken okay could that be fried chicken yeah so he came over and um we had the chicken it was kind of greasy and sensuous kind of like a tom jones piece. <laughs> And then we finished the chicken and we were licking each other's fingers. And then he, he asked me if I wanted to let my hair down because I had a really tight, like, 50s ponytail. And I said, yeah, do you mind if I take my makeup off? He said, oh, not at all. And he <laughs> helped me. And then he said, do you mind if I take my hair off? And I said, what? <laughs> and I, he said, this is a toupee. I'm, I'm bald. And I just, um, you know, I thought I would get comfortable. So I said, 
Sure. Oh my God. And needed to take off this toupee that went from here all the way down to the back of his neck. It was like he took off the back of his head. <laughs> without the toupee was not a desirable shape of the head for a bald man. Wow. And here we were in this compromising situation and I felt terrible for him. I mean, I didn't want to make it seem like he was revulsive because he had no hair because he was still a good looking guy. He just wasn't the guy I had gotten infatuated with yeah. during that day at the beach under the blankets. Yeah. So I, you know, we ended up friends anyway. But anyway, there's a chapter that goes into more detail in the book about the delusion of that we can change our persona. So right. Great. The removal or the addition of hair. So that's crazy. It's crazy that you had to deal with it in real time because I feel like there's a lot of shit that my generation does now, which is not maybe not physically cosmetic. You know what I mean? Because they don't go, they, they don't get to do everything like that to themselves when they go out in person. But they do it online. I mean, they, there's filters that make people look way younger than yeah. they should be, and whenever yeah. they're posting pictures, and then you actually meet somebody in person, and you're like, you're a fucking ghoul. Holy shit. Yeah, really. like, no, I, yeah. woke up this, I woke up this way. I just want to reassure you, I haven't done my <laughs> <laughs> John actually put his hair on for this show. I did, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm afraid somebody's going to hear that story and try to rip mine off, and like be like, I'm not getting fooled by this. You're, you shouldn't be having that much hair. Yeah, that is that is absolutely wild. That's a great story. Also, yeah, I love that the dude said he wanted to get more comfortable. Like, wouldn't that make you? I would if I was that bald and like peeling back something off my fucking skin. I feel like that would make me more uncomfortable in front of a woman. And the glue, the glue was still here in the front, you know, in the back, and it was like sticky little tufts of glue. And oh my uh, goodness! But I love him. He's a friend still. That's a good to our, our ability to communicate. Was it Larry David? No, <laughs> I don't think he would go to those lengths anyway, but that's not a bad. No, Larry, just take it like it is. That's yeah. You know, Larry was one of the, he was one of the least likely people I knew to make $800 million, you know, <laughs> billions of dollars doing curb. He was a very depressive kind of guy, very wow. private to himself. He hadn't found that aggressive, you know, curmudgeonly persona yet that he grew into i guess mm. the last 20 years yeah. so he was a much more genteel lovely guy back okay. when i knew him and it was just astonishing because he was the least likely to be able to accept heckling you know yeah. and stand up the improv he was not friendly with that he would get exasperated if the audience didn't get his joke yeah storm off the stage it was a very different larry david than we see today yeah, there's that one famous story about him walking on to the uh, on stage of the improv, taking one look at the audience and going, I don't think so. And then walking off before he even <laughs> opened his mouth to tell a joke. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, did you see did you know him as a stand up when you first met him or? Well, yeah, because I was a lapsed stand up myself. I, I okay. was failing and flailing just like he was. Only mm. I, I could respond. I would respond to hecklers by breaking down and crying. <laughs> and make me feel really terrible. That's I say, great. Well, you're happy. Look what you've done to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really have good rejoinders, but I could really cry well on cue, and I made an, a lot of audiences feel really terrible. So, oh, that's fantastic! Out of I that, I never yes, saw anybody do that. Larry, we were like cousins. Bruce Smaller and Larry David and I were all like oh. trying to stand out up at the Improv in New York and then at the Improv in L.A. And when we ended up on Fridays, it was like a family reunion in a way. That's awesome. We, we felt comfortable with each other. We collaborated well together. It was really comfy. What drew you to stand up in the beginning? 
Um, well, I was doing a Broadway show, a Moliere play called Scapino on Broadway. Hmm. And I had just signed with the William Morris Agency. And right. they asked me if I could put 10, 15 minutes of special songs together. I write comedy songs. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the improv because George Slaughter was casting for the new Laugh-In. Um, oh. So I threw together some of this special material that I have, like a love song to a man's foot, which is like a jazz <laughs> song and other kind of wacky characters and songs. Mm-hmm. And I um, and I went on. I didn't get that, but I did get seen for other things. And then they asked me to continue to do stand up. They sort of signed me with a variety agent in the uh, William Morris Agency. And then when I came out here, I just continued to do it because when I came out here, I knew no one. I was going mad with the sense of isolation you have in a new right. town and not belonging anywhere. And at the improv, I had an instant community because all the guys were coming out from New York too. It's like, we all came out in one swell foop, you know, yeah. and like late seventies, early eighties, we're all migrating out here. Do you remember your crew? Like who, who are the other comics were that you hung out with? Well, in New York, there was a guy named John DeBellis, wonderful writer. Oh yeah. Wonderful writer. Yeah. And um, let's see. Ed Bluestone. Oh, um, wow. Gary Shanling. Um, oh, that's awesome. Uh, David Brenner. Oh, um, the best. Ed Boosler. Nice. Um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful comedian. So it was a guy named Jack Grayman. I don't know if he came out to LA much, but he was hilarious. I really thought he'd make it big. Oh, cool. He didn't, but you know, I didn't necessarily know how to pick them clearly. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when I came out to the LA improv, there was already a built-in community. We were all desperate, mm. lonely and scared and yeah. we were too laid back out here, man. It was like, <laughs> it's like when we got to uh, off the, when we got to the airport in, at LAX for the first time, you know, all the New Yorkers like just jumped off the plane and all the LA people were so laid back. It was like, you know, just leave us the keys. We'll lock up. Right. No rush. They were so... <laughs> Yeah, LA was weird when I first moved out there too, just because there was a lot of uh, the pacing is different, just uh, just way way different than the East Coast. Um, I think it's changed now because I think that the uh, New York energy has kind of um, sure made migrated seem more aggressive, more competitive, more caffeinated. <laughs> caffeinated is a good word for it. Yeah. Uh, were you did you have ambition to go out on the road like and do the kind of road work comedy club stuff, or did you like staying localized and in, in your in your that the improv and stuff? No, I, John, I didn't really think it through. I didn't realize I'd probably have to go out and be on the road and perform in bars where people were drunk and crazy. I did right. do one out of town booking at a San Diego club, uh, TJ something in San Diego. And I opened for Leonard Barr, who was about 90 at the time. He was like an wow. old line, Borscht Belt, one-liner mm. kind of guy. And I was the MC that evening singing some of my silly songs and I looked at Leonard, he was in the dressing room and he was just doddering. I have to say, he was just kind of like a Aww. sack of bones in a suit. And I said to his manager, do you think he's going to be able to go on? And they said, don't you worry, just introduce him. So I introduced him and then it was like, ta-da, you know? <laughs> one liner after one liner, he was right on the money. It wow. was astonishing. So I saw what that desperation to perform can do for you. Yeah. I don't know who the hell we were talking to, but we were talking to somebody. We were saying that as soon as that light hits you, whether you're sick, old, you know, uh, a mute, whatever it is, it just it just sparks something and you're on for whatever that period of time is. And then once it shuts off, it's like power down, like the Energizer Bunny. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly true on Fridays. Our hours were rigorous. We work six days a week. 
And I remember 16 hour days at times because wow. a lot of the uh, writers were coked up and they didn't want to go to bed. <laughs> So they made us all stay up all night with them. You know, they would create like Jack Burns. He was like a Marine. Yeah. He'd say, cool, you got to, something just came in out of the UPI machine and we got to write a sketch about Iran right away. <laughs> and then we'd be up to like three, four in the morning. So those of us who were professionals and had been in theater, um, we're used to like having eight hour days and like nine hour sleep. So right. it was rough. The adjustment was rough. Do you remember getting it when you, when you found out you got it? Well, I wasn't hired first, I must confess. The um, the executive's wife, one of the ABC executive's wife, her name was Mary. She was lovely. Mm -hmm. She was hired first. So I had already gone into a depression of about, you know, a week's length. And okay. I had overeaten and I'd smoked a lot of dope. So that when uh, a, a costume designer called me and said, uh, we need your measurements to, to, to costume you. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, nobody called you yet? And I said, no, <laughs> replacing Mary with you. You've got to show up at the studio like in three hours. And so it took a few days for my wow. depression to lift and to really be there. Wow. And they'd already been working together on this material. So I came in really late. Um, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't a happy celebratory thing. It was a desperation kind of catch up, try to catch up kind of a feeling. Gotcha. I Did you guys know that you were basically filling a void after Saturday SNL kind of dipped? Like, did you have pressure on you guys? Like about like all eyes were on you? Oh no. You see, we were hired to be a clone of Saturday Night Live. That was ABC's intention. Okay. As a matter of fact, the writers kind of bought into that terrible, you know, designation that we had, that we were the second Saturday Night Live to appear by uh, creating our first sketch where we were all dressed as the uh, Saturday Night Live primetime players characters. Like we were oh my as God. I was dressed as Emily Vitella or I was dressed as <laughs> You know, and it was like, well, why are they comparing us? And why are they, you right. know, so we went, went right into the cheap imitation parody that's, thing. That's cool, though, leaning right into it and just embracing it. We didn't know how else to deal with it. We were so pissed because we're all iconoclasts. We mm. all had really original ideas and original characters that we wanted to do. So yeah. being told that we were basically a, an imitation of them was not a happy thing. And right. we resisted it. And Jack Burns made us the show that was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was his yeah. saying. And yeah. we all tried to fit into that and live up to that. Uh, it really made, made L.A. seem even more degenerate than it was back in the 80s. But um, <laughs> that's, what we, that's what we did. A lot of our material was about that. What were, they, were you guys like excited about the guest star kind of thing? Like, What was the feeling on set when you would have somebody come in you know, uh, to do it? Because comics can be naturally jaded. You know what I mean? Like, and, and kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. But you were all comedians. Yes. Well, I was an actor comedian and I had mm. never really been a an aficionado of rock and roll or heavy metal or anything. I mean, I knew Bonnie Raitt for sure. Sure. Had been a star. I knew um, oh, wonder, wonder, a lot of the wonderful performers that came on the show. But for me, it was like a learning curve. I mm. learned about a new rock group every week. So I was really thrilled. It was like mm. a you know, the golden book of rock and roll for a, a New York theater person. Um, I think we were all changing clothes most of the time. We were all getting ready for our next thing. In those two minute or three minute breaks while the band was playing, we were furiously getting prosthetics or, or mm -hmm. costume changes and wigs. 
so we didn't get to watch too often. But usually the band that came on the show would be performing at a concert in town, like at the Greek Theater okay. or um, at the Hollywood Bowl. So we would all get box seats and free tickets and go to see their concerts when we weren't dressing or putting on wigs and makeup. And we would get VIP passes to go out and hang out with them and go out with them. So that was great. Nice. That's yeah. smart. That's a yeah. great way to get everybody to kind of gel. It was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And um, then we'd never see them again, but it was really, you know, fun for those evenings, those late nights. And you would, so you were, you were used to doing kind of writing for yourself and everything like that. When was the pressure increased, like with a timetable to do the writing stuff? Did you learn how to write quicker? Like what was the thing that you kind of took away from? Well, it was very competitive to get anything on for the women. I have to say that we had all male writers. We had one lady, her name was mm -hmm. Elaine Pope, and she was like one of the guys. Mm -hmm. And getting female point of view material on was next to impossible. Oh. A couple of people wrote stuff for us that was wonderful. We couldn't mm -hmm. complain about that, but our characters never got developed like a Kramer or a pharmacist or a Rastafarian. Right. Uh, yeah. Our characters recurred. They were just totally undeveloped. So it was a very frustrating situation. I wrote as much as I could for the newscast because that was about the only thing I had any control over. Mm -hmm. but, and I wrote a few other sketches which they would rehearse but ultimately not put on. Mm. Uh, so it was a very frustrating time. I think some of the uh, uh, Lorraine Newman is a friend and she went through mm -hmm. some stuff where Gilda was was hanging out with Alan's wife Bell on Saturday Night Live and got a lot of stuff written for herself, worked yeah. exclusively with him. But none of us were paramours or anything with any of the writers. So right. yeah. we weren't spending those sorts of late nights at restaurants like New York, in New York with Saturday Night Live. They could go out to restaurants after the show and jam and get stoned and write together. But we didn't have any restaurants in Las Feliz where the ABC studio was located. Uh, no Everything closed in LA like at 11 o'clock. Yeah. So didn't have those kinds of hangout collaborative experiences like they did in New York. Did, oh, did it have the same feel as like, I feel like now, even now, like LA shuts down at night and then you have to go to like to a house party. Like that's what it usually <laughs> is. It's like, a, it is, it's, it's a yeah, weird, it's, like, right. it's different than New York. New York, you go out to like a, a, an area and everybody goes to this club or this restaurant or this or that. LA, it's like, good night. And then if you don't <laughs> know the house party to go to, you don't go out. Yeah. Well, the only place that was open late and still is, I can't believe it's still there, is Cantor's, which was a Jewish delicatessen in the Fairfax so district. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, we would go out for pastrami and, and such, but um, I don't think we did a lot of writing there. It wasn't a conducive area for writing. <laughs> the waitresses were the funniest thing there. They were the best writers. So they were always insulting us, which was hard. <laughs> <laughs> they just loved to insult us, but. So, no, we didn't have as many hangout areas as, as I would have preferred. Yeah. Were you, I mean, I'm sure you get asked this a million times, but were you there when Andy Coffin was, uh, when he guest starred? Yes, I was playing his wife. And that That's what I thought. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, because I haven't seen, it's not really online that much anymore, which is a bummer. I think I saw it when I was younger and then people pulled it down. I don't know why, but like, it's not, it doesn't float around as much. It's on YouTube a lot. And, is it? Uh, we do have the best of Fridays DVDs, which you can get at shoutfactory.com. Very nice. Oh, all right. I that was great. That. that was a good plug. I didn't know that at all. I wish I could say that I set you up for that, but I did not. Smooth <laughs> at that. But um, yeah, you can get it on sh at shout.com, but it's not all the shows and it's not all the material because we would have had to make a big music deal with so many of those performing acts mm. and they didn't want to be bought out that cheaply. 
So um, it's spotty. I'd say the quality of the material is good, but the best of the material isn't necessarily there and the bands aren't there on the shows. Oh, got it. That's a bummer. Yeah, it was a bummer. Yeah. Um, was, was that, did you have any, like, was that like a, a something that like you were like, okay, I can't work like this kind of a thing or was Me, it a shock? I was a really nice girl. I was really agreeable and amenable. I was a professional well before I did Fridays, you see. I'd been working in the theater. Mm -hmm quite a long time where everything's pretty, you know, disciplined. You have to really play yeah. by the rules or you're sure. out. So I didn't take those sorts of liberties. I don't think any of the cast really did. Everybody was very parochial, you know, by the book, in on time. We didn't have any like stars that were mucking around and hmm. you know, the, the writers were a little less dependable than the actors, but the actors were always on time and, and very respectful and punctual and, did hmm. did your is your heart with theater from starting there or did you like have you grown to love these other mediums more? I love a good story and I love working with good people, you know. And I've been really lucky to have those opportunities uh, avail themselves to me. I've gotten to do some really good theater out here, and I've also done some really great television out here. So I can't say that I prefer theater anymore. I certainly don't think I'd be up to doing another Broadway show. I did two Broadway shows while I was in New York. And it's eight shows a week. You know, it's a real marathon. You yeah. can't do anything else but that. Mm. Uh, I admire the people that are still doing it. Um, I'd be happy to do a cameo in some Broadway show, have my song, steal the show and get off. But I don't know about <laughs> carrying a show anymore. That would be a little beyond my energy scope. But um, wherever there's a good story and smart writers, I'm really happy to be. Right. Where was it? So after Fridays had kind of gone out, did you have a, a a panic moment or were you always like in the back of your mind onto the next thing, building another project, moving, moving forward? Well, I was exhausted. We all were. And um, it was a very stressful situation because the show was never picked up for a season. It was always picked up in episodes, like four increment, an increment of four episodes. So it felt like we were always auditioning for the network and there were lawsuits. I mean, there was a lot of negative press about us. Um, so I can't say that I wasn't a little bit relieved to have it end. And then I wanted to do film. Uh, so I held back for a while. I was offered another sitcom. It was called And Baby Makes Five uh, to play opposite the wonderful Peter Scolari, who's not Ooh. with us anymore. Um, and I was too tired. I just knew it would not be helpful wow. for me and the show for me to do it. Um, I was asked by Dick Ebersole at NBC to do Saturday Night Live immediately after I left. I think he asked Larry David, too. Larry said yes, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, but he was only signed on as a writer. I said, you know, I really want to act right now. I'm really it's fun doing sketches and it's fun, that crazy schedule. But I think right now I really would like to do something a little deeper. Right. So that's what I did. And I sat on my hands for a while. I was on the Newhart show playing opposite Peter Scolari actually for a while, which was fun. I got to play his therapist and Tom Poston's therapist and Bob Newhart's therapist and everybody's therapist. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, uh, I guessed it on a number of different shows and I pitched a series, you know, to various places, which didn't get taken by anyone. I really tried to develop my own stuff. Uh, I did some TV movies with Diane Cannon, with Bruce Boxleitner and folks like that. Hmm. But I didn't do another series until about 10 years later. I did a show called Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which mm -hmm. was on the brand new Fox network. Right. And, um, 
we were opposite 60 Minutes, which was one of my favorite shows. So we only yeah. lasted about three years, but I had a wonderful Good Lord. Part. Yeah. I had That's a wonderful right. part on that show. I got to play a villainess, a really crazy, narcissistic, Eva Perone kind of a character <laughs> nice. who treated this, you know, high school like it was a small South American country and she was idolized. You know, it was really a, a fun yeah. character. What's and your ideal character to play? Oh, I surprised me. You know, I've so far I've just been cast in things and oh, I never thought of that. And it was it's mm. just been perfect. So like in uh, there was a miniseries called Fresno, which was a takeoff on Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I'd had such people as Chuck Grodin and Carol Burnett and Terry Garr and Bill Paxton, wow. wonderful actors. And I played uh, an attorney for one of the uh, for Billy Paxton, I believe. And I would never have imagined myself playing this attorney before she was very like dressed to the nines and was always late to court because she was getting her nails done or her name was Desiree de Mornay. And that was just a hoot and a half. <laughs> and that show was a big hit in London for some reason, but not in, in, in America. They put a laugh track on it, which I thought was a terrible mistake. Oh. But it was a show about the raisin industry in Fresno and how people are murdered by being boxed and dehydrated. And raisin <laughs> boxes. Had a really great premise that was created by the guy that created Coach. Um, oh, nice. I forgot. I can't think of his name. I love Coach, too. Um... Yeah, I can't think of his name. But I loved it. I, I just got put into, I got into auditions where it called upon a whole new aspect of myself. And I really dug it. I really, I love digging up new persona. You know, I feel like I contain multitudes. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like there's so many more I have to explore. I'm hoping the right role comes along. There'll be the right intersection of me and some set of adjectives. Mm -hmm. And I'll be able to shine again in something else. That's what I'm hoping. Did you have, I mean, I mean, you seem to be open to almost everything as far as like whatever creative, you know, kind of project takes, takes your interest. You know what I mean? Like, so you'll go wherever you think is the most creative. Was voice acting something that you had kind of wanted to do or you were presented with it and you were like, that could be fun. You know, I wish I could tell you I had some five-year plan and some kind of intelligent <laughs> set of goals, but I've just kind of gone on what I auditioned for when I couldn't get my own shows put on. Um, I would just luck of the draw I'd audition for things I just auditioned for Rugrats it was one of my first animated auditions wow and uh I just lucked out when the, I read the adjectives it just sounded like my own mother it's <laughs> like mine only like 78 rpm just a little higher <laughs> vibration so it was right in there it was very easy to come up with so um you know that just was a lucky break I uh, got to work with Jack Riley he's gone now too um, Tom Bosley. I mean, really wonderful, wonderful yeah. people in the show. So, and it bought my house. Uh, it's been a real oh. cat cow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea when I auditioned that day how far this this train would go. It's been just amazing. It keeps giving and giving. Yeah. And it's been commercials as Dee Dee Pickles, which was wonderful. Mm. Um, I remember I did a GM commercial as Dee Dee Pickles, and I got 25 grand for five minutes work. Oh my God. Now, those were the days. Yes, those were the days. That, that was is a, incredible. Back when they said, okay, thank you. We think we think we've got it. I said, is there something else I can do for this? <laughs> is there can I sing and do a soliloquy? Can I do I can do Merchant of Venice? And no, they weren't interested. <laughs> oh my God. That's incredible though. I mean are you are, like, I feel like, cause for me, you just doing that voice right now, like immediately brought me back to my, cause that's my friends and I grew up on that show. 
that's um, like our, it's my generation that's one of our like staples i can hear the theme the theme won't stop playing in my head ever since you mentioned it now uh, but do you ever just like blow people's minds by doing the voice out of the blue and I like do. i have done and now i'm on cameo so i'm getting booked a lot oh. with his birthdays and parents birthdays um she, i do minka also who's the uh, mm-hmm. the grandma and I played Reptar's wife on ice. Reptar was the dinosaur character. Yeah, I love her. Yeah. Anyway, yes, I'm often being called upon to do those voices. And yes, I have done them. In fact, I think that's why my husband married me. You know, <laughs> his kids had been fans. And when they heard he was dating me, they said, you got to keep this one. <laughs> oh, so Rugrats got you a house and a husband. Yes. Yes, it really gave gave me a lot. And it gave me a lot of shbilkas, as we say in Yiddish, meaning, you know, a lot of sense of pride and happiness. Mm. Being part of something was so uh, educational and had so much integrity. I thought the writing was just terrific. Some of my favorite episodes are like the, the one where the kids are learning how to go to the bathroom where they're frightened of the toilet, you know. Yeah. I remember when I was a little girl being frightened of some kind of typhoon sucking me down the drain, too. <laughs> it's just when those writers were in the mentality of their little babies that they were bringing up at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it was a wonderful show. It won Emmys. I, I was very proud to be a part of it. Did you have a lot of uh, control and input with your character over time? Like, did you have a kind of relationship with the writers? None. Hmm. I mean, I know them all now, but they were always in a different room behind a glass booth. You know, we are quite divided in this business. You think we're all like we're all standing behind the TV screen, hanging out together, but we're actually, (laughs) you know, in different places and different buildings. And, you know, I met the animators because I went upstairs. They were drawing dirty pictures of Dee Dee Pickles in the rent. (laughs) In leather, you know, in like. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, kind of tight costumes and garters, and you know, and so I went up to confront them, and then we had just a good old time. They would be um, drawing me, my character, Dee Dee, mm-hmm. and then they'd be making faces in the mirror, like how I would talk. And over the years, the character began to resemble me more and more because the animators really captured the way my particular face moves. Right. You know, now they wow. do that with electrodes. You know, they motion sure. capture where they can really capture your personality. Uh, with all these little stem points. But yeah. back then they were doing it muscularity with muscularity. They were doing it with eye hand coordination only. So it was very impressive. Well, that's awesome. The movie, the, that was a huge thing when the movie actually came out too. Cause that was like a, you know, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was a risk, I guess at the time, but to turn a kid's TV show into a, into its own feature length film, but it exploded. I know, I know. And I got to have a child. I don't have a child in real life, but I got to go through cartoon labor yeah. and, and everything. And that was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> cartoon stretch marks, you know, nothing really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as it's drawn in, it can be erased. Who cares? Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is, too, is I, you know, I mean, I'm a I, I loved watching Mr. Belvedere when I was a kid. You were in some you were in a bunch of iconic TV shows. Mr. Belvedere, St. Elsewhere. Um, one that I have to ask you about in particular, because I don't think anybody remembers this show, but it was the Super Mario. Um, oh, God. I remember this show as a kid. Show. Super Mario uh, Super Bros show. But it was like mixed with like live action, a little bit of cartoon, too. Yes, I was. I, on, I think I played Wonder Woman. On yes. 
theories for a while. And I also played opposite Wonder Woman in real life. I got to be like a Najee Komen each character. Um, one of my first jobs in LA was working with with uh, the real Wonder Woman who, you know, I think I looked okay in the mirror when they made me up and then I'd come onto the set and I'd look at her and I, I looked like a thumb next to her. <laughs> she could rest her breasts on my head. I mean, that's how tall she was. And, um, you know, I just knew what true beauty was. I mean, Linda Carter is still a gorgeous woman. So, Do the animators from Rugrats draw any of that? No, <laughs> Springfield. Rick Springfield was my boyfriend, um, and he rescued me. You know, he and Wonder Woman rescued me. It was a thrilling experience. And Henry, Henry Gibson um, kidnapped me. You know, it was yeah. really, really fun. I have to say, and I got paid for it. And they flew me out here first class. I mean, it was. Oh, oh those were the days, boys. Those were yeah. the days. Yeah, you're, I, I feel like you're just this instrumental part of people's childhoods from like regardless of the decade because Rugrats is one thing too but the fact that you did all that kind of stuff too like it's got to be crazy to talk to people who are around again like around my generation and be like you know I probably raised you <laughs> like I was you were sitting in front of the TV watching me so yeah I mean a lot of young kids said my mother was a working woman she was a superwoman. she was never home and you were my mother you know, mm -hmm. basically, yeah. um, the nanny put me in front of the TV and <laughs> Pickles was my babysitter. Absolutely. So I became kind of um, inherent in some kids' psyches. So I have friends whose daughters are having babies and they want me to be part of their babies' lives. Right. Uh, although I'm sure their babies have a, another show that they're going to be thrilled by and watching now, but they still are shoving rugrats down their throats. So. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's never going to go away. Yeah. And then did you end up on Seinfeld because of the Larry David connection or was that totally just another book? That's because I'm a good actor. No, yeah, I, Larry <laughs> brought me in. Um, he uh, had a role uh, that Larry Charles had just written and they threw it together very last minute. And I think the earthquake in L.A. had just occurred. It was 1994. Mm. And I was in the I was here with the um, with the government guy to decide how much money I was going to get, you know, oh, wow. emergency relief. And uh, Larry called, or his his producer called and said, are you free tomorrow? And I said, well, yeah, what's going on? And he said, we have this part. And I read it and it wasn't one of the funny girlfriends, you know, it wasn't yeah. like the low talker or the piano player or anybody like that. It was more of a straight role. And mm -hmm. she's a mother and it wasn't funny, but I said, oh, what the hell, I'd love to be on the show. And yeah. you know, I knew Jerry from doing yeah. stand up also back then. And it was like, you know, being with my cousins again. It was really fun to do. Yeah. And it was a mini Fridays reunion, though, too, because Michael Richards, Larry, I was Larry wasn't didn't pop into that episode. Did he like as a weird cameo or no, no, he only did one. And I think they only showed the back of his head, back um, of his head and the cape, the guy in the cape with Jerry Stiller. Yes, yes. But the, he didn't make an appearance. And I think his frustration grew and grew, which is why he created Curbs. Yeah. Put him on the air. So, um, yeah, he, but certainly he made out really well. I was, I did the final Seinfeld and then I was at the rap party for the entire Seinfeld when it was finally shutting down. Mm -hmm. And the network had just given Larry a like a new Lexus convertible and it was like maroon and he pulled up in it. We were at the Griffith Observatory for this party. And I was just like, he was like a pig and shit. I have to say, <laughs> he was on top of the world. I said, Larry, I hardly recognized you. You're so happy. <laughs> and I, he said, well, you know, not necessarily, but he's had better therapy. I'd say he could afford far better therapy these sure. last 20 years. And um, he's on top of the world. I'm really yeah. happy for him. 
That's, that's, that's fucking awesome. Were you, when you were starting out doing acting, I like to ask a, a bunch of our guests this kind of thing. What was your parents feeling about that kind of stuff? Were they worried for you? Were they supportive? How, how did that relationship go? They didn't think I'd make a living at it. And they really wanted me to have some fallback positions, you know, like English teacher mm. and such. And um, I was really writing before I was even acting. I wrote a play that was put on in fourth grade called oh, The Queen's wow. New Dress. But I wasn't cast in it. And that's when I decided I'd better be an actor, too, because yeah. some other little ingenue got the part, the bitch. And I was the, <laughs> the narrator. I was the offstage narrator. And it was like, no, this will not do <laughs> to be an actor as well. So, yeah, I started. That's um, smart. In fourth grade going, no, 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 no. I'm going to write and star in my own shit. In fact, the teacher called and complained to my mother. She wants to replace me. She wants to direct. She wants to write. She wants to light it. She wants to. And I really had all those instincts, you know, but then acting for me, it just took up so much of my energy that I didn't get to direct any of the episodes I was in. I kept throwing in my hat to direct something like on Parker Lewis, but I never got that opportunity because it was such a special effects laden show. Uh, I wouldn't have been equipped to do Fridays because there was just no way to be outside of that show. You're in it. And there was no, yeah, there were no, we weren't shooting other scenes that you could you know, take a, a break from. But anyway, I did try on Parker Lewis, but Parker Lewis was like shooting a science fiction film because every shot had smoke and effects. And when I read it, I thought this is an animated script. They're not going to be able to do this, but they did it. I mean, I played a character who was breathing smoke. Sometimes something smoke was coming out of my ears. Sometimes yeah. my shoes would catch fire. I mean, it was very effects laden. You know, it yeah, it's very ahead of its time. Yes, a lot of the shooting style was taken for other films after that. You know, the refrigerator shot where someone goes in the refrigerator and the camera's yeah. in the refrigerator. Yeah. Um, or the uh, the turkey cam where a turkey carcass flies through the air and you see everything from the turkey carcass's point of view. Mm. It was yeah. very clever. Very That's very cool. Yeah. Do you remember a point in time in your career where you felt like you had not necessarily made it, but where you felt secure enough where you were like, okay, I'm good. Like, I know this is this is where I belong. Well, not financially for a while. In fact, not until a, in my 40s when I was doing Parker Lewis and Rugrats at the same time did I begin to feel financially secure. Mm-hmm. But I remember on Fridays, you know, we all got to be kind of household names within a matter of months wow. um, for good or bad. Uh, and I remember flying into New York again, first class, I think it was called the MGM Grand. It was like the uh, Orient Express train, you know, a really yeah. tasty leather seats, uh, couches. It was really just beautiful. And I remember looking as we were heading toward Manhattan, we were circling Manhattan. And I thought to myself, I'll bet you a lot of people down there know my name now. <laughs> it was like a really sort of prideful feeling. Like, um, I don't know if it felt like making it, but it felt like I'm known. You know, sure. my face will be known. And yes, when I landed, I was there. I was doing some talk shows, you know, some good morning shows and such. Yes, I was recognized and treated differently where people were looking at me like I had a TV screen in front of me. There was sort of a <laughs> over their eyes, you know, when they looked at me. Uh, so I could tell it, it was alienating and mm. thrilling, you know, at the same time. Even my own family looked at me askance. I mean, it was different. Oh, did you get like the yeah. you changed kind of a thing when you went back to visit? Yes, they'd say that you're too busy for me now. And I'd say, you know, I still love you, but yeah, I'm busy. I am busy. <laughs> and I don't have the kind of idle time I used to have. Right. 
So I think that's inevitable. You know, people do go through their own, you know, your success makes other people feel really badly about this. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible feeling to have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird balance to try to create where you're, where you're like, you know, you know what's crazy about it too, and I know you've probably been through this way more than I have too, but when you're when you're talking to people and you don't quite know whether you should be talking about your career as much, because it's what you do at 24 seven. So it's hard to kind of like talk about that kind of stuff without sounding like, you know, I don't know, boastful. You know what I mean? Like it's weird. So you're like, Oh, I don't know if I'm talking too much about myself or, or what I'm doing, yeah, but that's all you are doing. Yeah, and I would assess the other person standing, you know, it's like mm -hmm. if they were a struggling actor, I didn't want to talk about that stuff at all. Yeah, exactly. Make them feel badly. And um, and then if they were thriving in their own work, I'd feel really good about yeah. sharing my sense of purposefulness and success at what I wanted to do. Yeah. So yeah, I did have to kind of uh, calibrate my behavior. And sometimes yeah. what performers are complaining about doesn't make any sense to people who aren't performers and they just feel like, oh, are you having a hard time making people laugh? And you're like, no, but it, there's all this other shit behind it. And then it's like, it's not even worth it. Well, I was having a lot of trouble with identity, which is why I wrote my book, Odd Woman Odd Out. Woman out. Um, nice. Because yeah. uh, um, I kind of had a series of persona, you know, part of which led to my success, but part of which made me very confused as a human being is how to relate to other people. Mm. And how to find intimate love. It took me a very long time. I was 65, actually, when I got married, to find out how to let myself be loved and how to love in a trustworthy manner and consistent manner. And um, this is a very funny look at the struggle I had. It was hilarious, heartbreaking, and then hopeful. I kept thinking, I'm not going to give up yet. I know I, I meant to be a, a, a family person. I meant to have a family. And I did. I got a prefab couple of kids. You know, they were already like grown up. They'd already been breastfed. They'd already gone to college. <laughs> They're wonderful. I got them with no stress. And then I have a wonderful husband. And, you know, I'm having a whole new life at this stage and age, which is I'm very happy about. It. I'm very proud of it. And so yeah. I let the career slide a little bit. OK, but I've been like really happy. Yeah. That account for something. So, um Absolutely. How long did it take you to kind of let like to, to go, OK, I'm happy and it's OK for me to have uh, this other life, this social life and experience family? Like, did it take you a little bit to kind of realize you could let go? No, John, right away. I felt oh, wow. right away at home, comfortable. This is the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to have this sort of support right in the room with me. And nice. And he's very successful in his work. He's a psychotherapist. Oh. And uh, our shop talk is about sort of the same thing from different angles, trying to understand character, mm. you know, trying to understand how pe what motivates people, what hangs people up, what troubles people. Hmm. So we and have when is he available? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Great on your show. He's yeah, yeah. <laughs> he studied improv with me and he got very good at talking and not just listening to people. Mm. Um, too good at talking. He's very, very funny. He does wonderful characters and such. Nice. Yeah, he's available to do the show. No, I'm a, we're going to do a one-on-one. -on -one. I don't care about the show. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he works on Zoom. Um, he's ever so available to anybody all over the world. That's incredible. Did you, did you struggle with imposter syndrome for a long time? Phrase that differently. I mean, how would you define that? I would define yeah. it as when you were having... For, for me, it was always if you're having success somehow in the back of your mind thinking you don't deserve it. Well, I remember I was I, did, I wrote a one woman show, one woman musical, and it was a full house and I was about to go on for the first time. And I sort of got this horrifying feeling of, 
who do I think I am to hold <laughs> people captive for an hour and a half with all the stuff that comes out of my mind? You know, mm -hmm. who do I think I am? So I think at that moment in time, I felt like shame and horror that I was about to hold this bunch of people captive right. talking about myself, you know? But yeah. then an agent saw it and she said, you know, this is a book, write it as a book. Nice. So I feel a lot less guilty with this. With the, yeah. <laughs> out, um, you know, holding people's attention for a while, you know, mm. and they talk, it is all about myself. In fact, I got one bad review on Amazon, one star. I think it's from a family member. Wow. <laughs> this person only talks about themselves. And, uh, and um, it, the people in her stories would probably have different stories. Well, yeah. Of she, course. That's yeah. the whole, yeah. That was going to ask because was it i mean you did the one woman show and then you put it into a book obviously you go in more detail and more in depth in the book was it hard for you to kind of relive some of the things because you get very very personal in your book and i wonder how that process what that process was like well i felt like if i didn't tell the truth mm. and didn't go into explicit detail what would the point of the book be i right. felt like i wanted to come clean about my me too movements which i didn't act on back in the mm. day we too, uh, my women of my generation, didn't want to slow things down. We didn't want to muck up our careers. We kept our mouths shut. We didn't even think in terms of suing right. or, or, or complaining. We just thought we'd be seen as sniveling little dependent bitches, and we just never did. Wow. So I thought, like, this is an era, I'm sure you've noticed, where women are really telling the truth. Yeah. And they are so detailed in their descriptions of what's happened to them that it would have been a cop out for me not to be as as uh, explicit about my own life and my own thinking. Right. Um, you know, my thinking was pretty screwed up for a right. very long time. Um, I was very uh, survival oriented, you know, to make it at any cost. Mm -hmm. And I let a lot of things go by the wayside. Many of us did because we didn't have the confidence to speak for ourselves you know, at, at, at crucial moments. Um, so yeah, I do go deep and thank you for reading, John. I'm really, very, it was great. I loved it. And I want to, I'm curious if you have any kind of, um, I would say maybe uh, advice. People always get weird about giving out advice, but I can't think of anything better to any way, better way to put it. If somebody else is writing about their own, because a lot of people are doing that now, you know what I mean? People have blogs or they're trying to get out their story. If there's, any advice you maybe have about kind of sitting in a room alone with your own thoughts and re going through maybe trauma or something like that? Do you have any? Well, I mean, you can always write a book that it's, I did this, I slept with this, I did that, but there has to be to me some mm. theme beneath it, some theme of self-realization yeah. or consciousness to hold my interest, sure. uh, the ability to cope with uh, adverse circumstances. I mean, this is what I learned from, so that's what I would encourage uh, memoir writers. And since pandemic, I think there have been more memoirs on the market than at any time in history. Yeah. Everybody just sat down and wrote one. Everybody just downloaded their their trauma, you know, onto yeah. the page. And some uh, some are more uh, entertaining than others. I love Colin Juist's book. I don't know if you read. Oh yeah, his his book is great. Yeah. Yeah, I I loved it, and he's so self deprecating without really putting himself down. He just talks about how loathed he was because he mm -hmm. was like a good looking waspy guy. And yeah, you know, he's just got the crap beat out of him all the time. And it's kind of adorable. Right. If he didn't tell us all that, it wouldn't have been that entertaining a book. He would have just described the sketches he was in on Saturday night live and the wonderful things that happened. But sure. Yeah. It's always better when people go like, I, there's a couple books from 
you know, comedians or entertainers that I love from like the old days. Like Rickles book is a really great book. Have you ever uh, read that one? No, I'll get it from my mom. My mom's turning 98 next week. So I'm looking oh, for hey, have you heard yeah, from your birthday. mom? That's fantastic. In the New Haven area still. That's oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Rickles book is a great book. And it's kind of funny because Rickles book, Bob Newhart's book, and also I think Steve Martin's book about stand up kind of came out within the few years of each other. And it's weird. I don't even know. It definitely wasn't intentional, but they all kind of have stories about meeting each other at certain points in their careers. So it kind of intersected. But the, the cool thing was, is Steve's obviously goes in same way, almost like yours, has, very in depth, very detailed, very personal. And, you know, I guess Rickles wasn't that type of comic anyway, or that type of person. So you don't find out too much about him that isn't surface, you know what I mean? That isn't career-wise or career-oriented. But it's, it's, is that just uh, uh, something that people, you think, have to get over? Is that just a product of the era they're in? Or, you know, because a lot of guys don't go, a lot of people don't go too personal or too in-depth, you know? Where I feel like now everybody is like that. Well, Don Rickles, I mean, his style of comedy was never very, you know, revealing. About right. Himself. I mean, he was yeah. wonderful. He was a master of the put down. Um, mm. But I would imagine his book would not be one that I would enjoy reading. Right. Um, I'm reading Martin Short's right now. Oh, that's so good. I must say. And of course, he suffered a great deal in his life. And he managed to be entertaining and then full of pathos, too. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't help caring about him. Um, Demi Moore's book actually was very interesting to me. She and I did something similar, although I'm a a bit funnier than she, um, <laughs> called Inside Out. Okay. And, um, she reveals a lot about how lost and confused she was and with her very fraught relationship with her mother. Mm. Uh, she kind of became a star before she was a person, you know, like, like me. I didn't really know who I was. I just knew that certain tricks of mine really worked well, certain postures, certain deliveries, and I just worked it. But in terms of what I was feeling, aside from tense all the time, I didn't really understand myself very well. And she's very candid about that in her book. It came out around the same time as mine. Nice. Um, with so. your with your mom, Amy, turning 98 and everything, but do you, did she read your book? Do you have a conversation about this? I'm sure there's stuff that you didn't tell her when you were coming up in the business and it's a rough business. Was, was there a conversation afterward? Like, why didn't we talk or, you know what I mean? Or well, my mother uh, and I used to go to therapy together. Um, my mom left my dad after 42 years of marriage. Wow. And um, so she went to Codependence Anonymous and she went through a lot of therapy. So she was much more self-aware in the last 30 years than she had been. I, I'm really proud of her because she mm. came to a place of calm in herself and self-acceptance and self-love. Um her relationship with my father was very difficult, as you may gather from the book. Yep. And she um, she read a bit of the book. In fact, I, I sent her the audio book, which I recorded myself. Nice. Um, and took out the parts that I knew might be controversial or uncomfortable. Oh, wow. That's what I was wondering. A shorter version of them. Unfortunately, somebody bought her the book. So um, wow. she read it. And I think when she got to one chapter about a conf confrontation with my father, the only thing she said to me was, you know, I, he didn't put me out in the snow when I was naked. I had my clothes on when he put me on the snow. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I remember it differently. Right. And I, you know, compounded and um, conflated a number of incidents together. But, you know, I just remember the most drastic points for me. And sure. I him putting you outside in the snow when you were naked. So, um, that was about all. And then at a certain point, she said, you know, I can't go any further. I'm going to give up now. I said, okay, that'd be fine. 
So I'm buying her other people's memoirs for her birthday. So I'll get Don Rickles. She loved Mel Brooks. Yeah, that was a good one too. She's asking for an Elaine May autobiography. And oddly, Elaine has never written one. I think it would be breathtaking. Yeah. Um, but I've oh sent him everything about Mike Nichols that I can possibly find. His nice. wonderful Alan Alda's book. books are good too. Do you have, have you ever read any of those? No. Oh, great. Yeah. Def- I'll send her a whole bunch. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I like that we're picking out stuff for your mom for her birthday. I'm like, where are you taking her? Uh- <laughs> She's pretty homebound right now, so mm-hmm. I won't be taking her out anywhere. She's at a point where she can't believe she woke up again the next day. She's wow. not alert. Uh- not really ill or infirm. Her mind is fine if she can hear you. And mm. um, her immune system's very strong. She just has had little strokes here and there. So it's not uh. as much fun. She's not that mobile right now. Gotcha. But she's still here. It really bodes well for my sister and me. Yeah. Stick around. And Absolutely. you're in Jersey. Are you guys in New Jersey? I'm in New Jersey. Tom's yeah. in Staten Island. Oh, yeah. so you stayed back there. Yeah. Have you been here a lot? I lived there for two years and then um, I go back, I, you know, it's the usual comic actor thing, go back out there for pilot season. So I would, I lived there for a couple of years, came back, uh, stayed here, did a bunch of stand up still. And then now I just fly back and forth when I had gigs or every year to do, to pitch something, right? Pitch, right. right. stay for a little bit, come back, you know, rent mm-hmm. a nice car, pretend you're living. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, come back defeated. That's the routine. Oh. Yeah. yeah, but no, it's not bad. I mean, I like it out there a lot. I just it, the thing was is that I there wasn't a lot of stand up. Like I I'm, I was used to being out on the road all the time because what I I've been doing stand up for ten years by the time I moved out there. So I was used to being traveling all over the place and and you know being in a car or in an airplane or whatever. And then you got out there and I did the Ice House and the Comedy Store and Flappers and all those places. But then there was no road work really. You know what I mean? Like I I went to Phoenix you know once and then that was fine you know uh thought i was gonna break down in the middle of the desert but that's fine uh and then um you know but but there wasn't a lot of road work so i found myself like booking a bunch of gigs and flying back east to make a bunch of money to come back mm-hmm. to live and then i was just like oh i'll go back and and do stand up and but it was nice i liked it for a couple of years it was all right and now you're at the uh the comedy store and the improv club in new york no, there's no comedy store in New York, unfortunately. There's the comedy, but I I did I did all the New York stuff when I I started in New York. I started doing stand up in New York, so I got passed at a bunch of those places. Um, and now I just do the road like I normally do in between, you know, variants uh-huh. at this point. So yeah. as long as it, and uh, literally, I swear to God, every time I book shows, a new variant pops up, and I have to I blame it. John. I blame yeah. John. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what it's been. That's the way it's been going. But mm-hmm. well, we're kind of. Do it now. We got lots of masks. I think every time I go to a doctor's office, they give me another mask. I could sell them. I'm in a thousand masks. <laughs> I'm using them as rags now. I'm cleaning the counters. <laughs> and I like the 95s. They give out the little flimsy ones, and they're not very uh, attractive. Yeah. And these yeah. parts, this part of your nose shows, and it's just not attractive. Looks. No, I know. Yeah. yeah, the 95s are great. The 95s are the ones everybody should be wearing and, and going out and. Did you have did you have like an influx of creativity during the pandemic where you felt like because I feel like a lot of people had uh, this thing where they were like adjusting to not doing anything. And then if you're some kind of an artist, like it was just a pickup and you're like, I got to start writing. I got to start doing something. My brain's going nuts. Absolutely. I think that uh, you go quite mad when you're a performer and you're not performing. Yep. And um, luckily, I had a lot of Zoom, <laughs> I did some Zoom plays. Nice. Not the same, of course, but it's right. a- and fortunately for me, I was doing a lot of book talks on Zoom. 
Oh, that's great. Uh, libraries all over the country, including my hometown library new in New Haven. Oh. And um, so I did have a lot of activity and I found I had more opportunities to meet wonderful people on podcasts like yours, have intelligent mm -hmm. conversations. So uh, I think the book was a bit of a calling card for me to enter new echelons of intelligence. Right. And I'm still writing a great deal. I get published a lot. I make bubkas, but still. Yeah, you're um, on Huffington. <laughs> you're on Huffington Post. I've read your your essays and stuff. Oh, um, I'm in Medium a lot right now. Oh, uh, Medium's great. Then Funny Times and McSweeney's. I think you'd really love McSweeney's. Um, there's just a whole variety of of groups. They don't pay very much, but they mm. do publish you, and at least you feel you're being read, which is yeah, great. yeah. So I will continue to do this between acting jobs and hopefully get something. I have a novel now that I've written. Well, I'll call it a novella because it's short. Okay. Um, and it's uh, dystopian, as a matter of fact. Very so cool. Tonight's show, uh, I would just reveal that I have a comedy dystopian piece coming out. And I'm just going to record it as an audio book and donate the proceeds to the Ukraine refugee situation. Because I think I'll probably make as much money by taking a deduction and donating it than I would selling it. <laughs> uh, made out of paper. A book made out of paper is very costly. Yeah. If I just yeah. do it in my home studio and get effects and put on it, effects on it, then I don't have to have any font. You yeah. know, I don't have any page just dis page discussions. I'll just have a cover and I have a title. And um, I'm just gonna try doing audio audio books for a while. That's great. That's a great idea. We'll see. How good are you at, at at going like, you know, like you got the book done. Are you good at going, okay, this project is done and I'm going to give my brain and creative process a break. Or are you like already on to the next thing? I'm popping. I mean, I wake up, semi wake up at like four or five in the morning with ideas. Just oh like, God. they're like, it's like, you know, planes ready to land at the airport circling. <laughs> and then That's I get my phone as soon as I'm conscious, I text some of the ideas in there so I won't lose them. And then I develop, I have a lot of scraps of ideas I'll have to say right now, mm -hmm. in endless little texts on my telephone. Yeah, I do the same shit, yeah. It's yeah. funny when you're, I'll have to send you a text message because when you're when you're waking up in the morning, I'm usually just going to bed. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. Seven in the morning? Wow. Four, oh, four, four, I was thinking, I was thinking like four or five o'clock in the morning, I'll go to bed. Wow. Yeah. So you do all your writing at night? Yep. Because everybody's asleep, and then mm -hmm. I can kind of just, you know, not get text messages and all that other shit, and and get stuff done. Mm. Is it lonely? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it, 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 you're absolutely right. It is because like I'll get like this great idea. I'll want to run something by somebody, and I'm like, no one's awake. I have no one to call. Yeah. <laughs> John John texts me at four thirty in the morning, and then I'm like, yeah, perfect. Great yeah. idea. Go back yeah. to bed. Well, China, you should get a collaborator in China. That's a good idea. I bet you they have somebody on Fiverr. Like, can you be my friend? <laughs> yeah, in the opposite zones of the of your time zone, and then yeah. you're collaborating all the time. That would be wonderful. That's a good idea. I do have I have a couple of friends in Australia, which is interesting because they they'll be awake sometimes, and they're like, what? but they'll be like, "What are you still doing awake?" <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I got a bunch of shit going on. You know, but if you email them, you know they're eventually going to wake up and get it. And so, it's oh yeah, completely isolating, right? Right. Yeah. No, it's fine. I mean, you know, I think the, that's the other cool thing about the pandemic, too. It kind of reinforced like, you know, uh, not really like a lonely thing, but whatever. But like you were able to like grow like a bit of a salve over like, you know, any kind of emotional need. You're like, OK, I'm not seeing people because it's for the benefit of society. So 
you know, it kind of helped you reconcile with that a little bit. And now there I'm just a pod groups, though, that started, you know, these podcasts and groups where people yeah. convene, you know, and just talk yeah. about something in the news every week and get stuff off their chest. Yeah. And here in LA, I've turned a lot of single people onto it. Uh, and you call in and, and there are these, um, she shows a film, you know, sometimes a TED talk or some other short thing. And that puts us all into breakout rooms for intimate conversations or revealing conversations about how, how that touched our lives, how that particular situation of honor or deceit affected us. So that's been helpful. That's a great idea. I've, I've not been a part of it. Well, we, we've been running like, uh, we've been doing this, but we yeah. used to have, um, I think when it first started, like, we started doing it on Thanksgiving. A bunch of comedians would just meet and go on Twitch and play games or shoot the shit or vent or talk about what was in the news. That was really helpful in the very beginning. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah. That was nice. Are you writing a long form thing, John? Or are you writing just material right now for stand up? Still writing material for stand up and actually taking what we've done here. And I'm, I'm, uh, cause this, the dystopia tonight started out for me as a, a series that I was doing. I was going to write cause it was, I was about to go back out to LA. I'd come up with dystopia tonight. And I was like, Oh, it'd be really funny if like, you know, uh, there was a genuine disaster on earth and, you know, maybe climate change finally hit whatever it is. And the, there's still a network being run, right? And they have no more talk show hosts or no more guys to do it. And they just come across some poor schlub, me. And they're like, he'll do it for not, you know, and it, it, the world is ending, but he'll fucking still run a show. But I still think it's like my, my big break or my big chance. So I take the gig. And I had written a bunch of episodes where, you know, um, it's all disaster related. So, you know, instead of a city in the background, it's literally just a broken window and everything's on fire. And in one episode I wrote, uh, the water level keeps rising. So every time we come back from commercial, it's a little higher <laughs> in the studio and we mm -hmm. keep losing like cameraman and, you know, eventually. So it was just goofy shit like that. And then yeah. pandemic hit, I didn't get to pitch it. So turned it into just the name and, and this kind of thing. And now I'm like working on building it and rewriting it and, and hopefully getting ready to pitch it. Well, you know, it's, you can't really write anything light and fluffy right now. I mean, I, I right. just, know how I, unless you're just wanting to be a distraction you know right. bubble gum but i'm um, it's really hard to write anything completely light i mean yeah. i look at the evolution of some of our favorite stand-ups like dave Chappelle. i mean he's he's got the heart of a philosopher and um i really am a fan of his courage and the way he really comes out and tells it like he sees it he Same. is not opposed to any one group gender wise color wise he mm -hmm. just like jerks i mean and he's very candid about um how some people are jerks no matter what color or belief they carry absolutely and i just love i think pat oswald was one of my favorite first stand-ups too because of his losses yes transition to doing like a one-man show yeah it's more than and there are very funny moments in it yeah um then, then the Hannah Gatsby thing, I can't say that I loved her show, mm. but it certainly was a breakthrough. Um, yeah. A lot of artists. You know what's crazy about it? It's the, I feel the same way. Is I, I don't, I, I think, I think it got good press at the time by, by having groups of individuals who had no real artistic background arguing, arguing over whether or not it was stand up. Mm -hmm. when, and, the, and Netflix put it in the stand-up category, which pissed everybody off. But the thing, but I don't understand why we couldn't appreciate it for what it was. It was a one-woman show. She was, you know, um, very expressive in it. She told a different kind of a story thing. And she was had funny moments in between. I've seen people give TED Talks that are really funny. I wouldn't call it stand-up. 
So I don't understand why it had to be an insult to not have it be. I think it was people who don't identify with standups and with comedy because they're, you know, I mean, not everybody has a great sense of humor. You know what I mean? Everybody thinks they do, but they don't. But like, uh, I think people who don't identify with regular standups really wanted this to be their standup. But I, I feel like that's like if I'm I'm allergic to dogs and if I just got a fake dog, I was like, this is the new dog now. <laughs> this is I don't it doesn't bother me. It doesn't irritate me. And now this is dog. And people are like, that's a lamp. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you look closely. It's a dog. I was going to say rabbit. I was going to say rabbit. Or rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like, no, I don't think that's an interesting time for comedy. I mean, I'm interested yeah. in seeing how our leaders will do. Like, how mm-hmm. is Jerry Seinfeld going to handle this period? I, I agree. How can he do just observational, you know, yada, yada right now? It's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And he's trying to branch into other things. We'll see how he does. I certainly love comedians in cars getting coffee. Me too. There was some wonderful stuff there. I didn't like B story, you know, his attempted mm. animation and, and stuff. But, yeah. you know, he can fail on his face. It's fine. He's a yeah. billionaire. And um, more power to him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I, you know, I, I'm not, um, I feel like comedians weren't ready in the beginning for the amount of attention that we were going to get. Um, but, uh, I think we're, I think now is a really interesting time too, because I think we're just handling it well. Like we seem to have a real good hold on social media and what it means and how it's kind of run. And also like not necessarily letting people who are offended by nonsense kind of get to us at this point. Cause now we're like, this is who we are. Like if you're here for the comedy, great stay for the comedy, but these are jokes. You can't turn jokes into statements and then use them against us, you know, because you don't agree with a climate change joke somebody made or, or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty icky right now. It's really, yeah. I mean, somebody in your position, um, you can take a lot of chances, but if you have your own special, how many chances are you going to take? You know, right. how much risk can you take? That's a question I'd love to ask you. What do you what do you think of the the quote unquote special at this point? Like everybody does seem to kind of they're almost like diplomas at this point where like everybody seems to fucking have one and they don't really do necessarily for you. They're almost like advertisements for going to see you live. I feel like an expensive advertisement almost, you know, and you have to write a whole new act because all your stuff eaten up on the Netflix special. Would you do would you would you think it would be worth it to do one? I would do a variety show sort of stand-up performance. I would do a musical review because that's my thing. I'm a singer. And I would have mm-hmm. on friends of mine like Wendy Liebman, who I think is wonderful. I and love a Wendy singer. Liebman. And I'd have probably all babes, you know, all women I respect mm-hmm. and love. And um, and there'd be singing and um, and my comedy songs, of course. My love songs, sure. Romance, would have to be revived. But, um, yeah, I would love to do a variety show special. You know, Carol Burnett's idea. not right now and i i is anyone doing one except colbert and it's no it's, he doesn't sing as much as he should he's a good performer he is uh, really good he th- did you see that christmas special he did a couple years ago i'm not sure what was it the, was he uh, yeah he was i don't know i think he was still doing the, i think it was still uh during the colbert rapport but he did oh. like a jokey kind of old school christmas special but was it was really sweet it was really funny and and a lot of singing and it was cool it was interesting. There was a, uh, um, uh, what's his name, who wrote Blink? Malcolm Gladwell did a, oh, yeah. a talk about comedy yeah. and satire right now. And he was saying that they realized that the Colbert Report, which we all adored and saw mm-hmm. as a liberal, you know, a parody of re- re- Republican values, sure. was seen by the Republicans as one of their guys. They felt yep. that he was satirizing liberals to, to their taste. 
And mm -hmm. so it didn't really move the needle on convincing um, non-liberals and conservatives to come our way. Right. Uh, it kind of reaffirmed the positions that we were all in. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I would watch the Colbert Report and I think, oh, he's just parodying yeah. this. He's a wonderful kind of pompous jerk, you know, wonderful character. But Gladwell said it didn't really work. It didn't move the needle. People were interviewed from both camps afterward right. and they all their show so it's a real weird it, it's very perception on the internet is so skewed it's very like alarming what people actually want to believe it's kind of like you can you can choose your own camp at this point the same way you can choose your own facts and your own news stories and news groups yeah it's like people get to choose their own what, what they want to interpret comedy as or what they want to interpret somebody's satire as in spite of the yeah. fact that literally colbert could go on air and go no this is what we're satirizing they're like i don't think so <laughs> Work for us, yeah. Yeah, but that's why he did the um. Th that's why he got hired to do the George Bush White House Correspondent Center because somebody thought they were on their side of the aisle. Right, right. Really? Oh, he was right, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, and just and they didn't laugh that much. No, but it was so good. That so was like brave. brave. Yeah. That's Absolutely. what I want. More courage. I yeah. Want more I guess my book, I was kind of brave for my you know, yes. values. I was very brave in it. And I want to continue to do that level of candor, you know, yeah. in my work now. I hope um, you do a variety show. That'd be, that'd be really, really fucking cool to see. It would be really fun if I could get the right writers, you know, yeah. to help me develop my ideas. That would be different. I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything quite like it right now. Yeah, I agree. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, I've got to ask you the, uh, the big three questions. Do we have any questions, Tom? Uh, nothing, not just a lot of like a lot of com happy great comments. show. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay, I didn't want to like jump on anybody's. Yeah, Tom, uh, yeah, we don't want to suppress Tom for God's sake. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's been smiling and nodding, and he seems completely sincere. That's what I do. <laughs> I I enjoy I enjoy the conversations, and I try to slide in a comment here and there. That's it. Oh, nice it's wonderful having you. I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, all right, so big three questions we ask every guest. First question is, if you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? Um, you're better than you think you are. You're a better person, not like your daddy said. Um, you're actually a good girl, and you don't have to work so hard to be um, a good person, because you are a good person. Nice. Very nice. Um, and the that, that was sad. Sorry. No, no, no. It's <laughs> okay. It's genuine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, second question is what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Hmm. I think uh, giving up being a, a, a movie star was important for me to realize that I was built for the smaller screen hmm. uh, and stopping pursuing that uh, was good for me. I could be, you know, straight with my agents and stuff. Nice. Yeah, I'm a small screen in person. Well, the bigger screens now, but still. Was that was that upsetting to you though when you when you realized that, or was it a, was it like all right, just kind of kind of face the music? No, I look at friends of mine. I have friends like Betty Buckley is one one of my dear friends, and uh, she is so brave. I mean, mm. balls to the walls or ovaries to the walls. No, um, <laughs> she she'll, she goes for everything. I have another friend, Lynn Shea, who does a lot of horror. Um, she was actually in something about Mary. She played the neighbor who was always sunning herself with the reflection. Yeah. Oh my God, no way. So good. She does a lot of incredibly brave, 
horrible characters and does really, really well. I was just at her house a couple of weeks ago. She owns quarter horses. I mean, she's astounding. Wow. And so I looked at them and I said, oh, this is a different kind of courage than I have and a different kind of energy and stamina than mm -hmm. I have. Um, and I was able to let it go more easily because of their success at it. Wow. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I, so this is their thing. You know, yeah. they don't do what I do and I can't do what they do. So that's so healthy. Wow. That's a really healthy way to look at it. Holy shit. Yeah. I, I know people that would be way more envious. Um, <laughs> the last question I love because it ties into the show. Uh, and it is if this was a genuine dystopia mm -hmm. uh, and this is the last day on earth, whatever the alien zombies, whatever you want it to be, comet heading toward the earth, uh, how would you want to spend your last day? What would be your epic death? Um, like I'd say be with my husband, like I'm doing now and laughing and having fun and, um, eating a big steak. Sorry. I know we're all supposed to be, <laughs> we're all supposed to be eating Petri meat and nothing that looks like me getting meat anymore, but <laughs> a good thick steak. Nice. What would you have for a side? Um, well, I make, a, you know, I make delicious yam pudding. So I would make a yam pudding with cinnamon and orange and some. Oh my God. Yeah. And a little bit of maple syrup. And uh, see, I have lupus. So I have a very limited diet. I mean, I happen to have caffeine since yeah. I was in my 20s. I don't oh. need sugar or any of that stuff. So I can still, even in my fantasy here, you're giving me this opportunity to match my last day on earth. I still can't seem to put ice cream in there. It's really sad. Oh man. That is, yeah. I can't. But I I would eat marzipan. I definitely would eat marzipan. Nice. And pizza. Uh, I'm going to your house when this actually happens, by the way. <laughs> yeah, come on over. I'll be spending more money. Yeah. Oh, man. That sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on with us. I really appreciate it. This has been yeah, a blast for me. I appreciate being invited. I'm sorry about the snag at the beginning. I just couldn't get on Chrome. Oh, no. no you're no, totally no, fine. Good. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. That was great. Such All a right. good time. Thanks thank so much. Bye. Dystopia tonight.